0: Thank you for that, guys. If you would, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, chapter 1. I'll wheel my little whiteboard over here, although nothing has changed from last week on it, but just as I'll refer to it a little bit throughout the service today. And when they come back up at the end, don't walk into it, you know, accidentally if I've covered anyone up. We've all had that feeling before. You've gone somewhere maybe to to class or you've been around a group of people where somebody is talking about something and they think you know what they're talking about and you have absolutely no idea what they're talking about, but everybody else seems to around you. For example, when I was in seminary, my first day... When I went to seminary, I'm going to school to be a pastor. I remember sitting in class, and the professor started talking about eschatology. I had absolutely no idea what that word meant at that particular time. Now I do. It's the study of the end times, you know, the rapture and all of that. But I had no earthly idea what he was talking about. And yet he was talking about it as if all of us knew what he meant. And, you know, as I'm sitting there going, what does this word mean? And I I looked around the room out of the corner of my eyes, and all of the other people in the class had that look of they knew. You know, they're just, they got the little, they're shaking their head like they knew exactly what this word meant. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But, of course, not wanting to look foolish, I decided to do the same thing. You know, I'm sitting there nodding my head like I have a clue what he's talking about. And the entire time in the back of my mind, I am praying, please, please, don't call on me. Don't ask a question like, what are your thoughts on eschatology? And I'd be like, well, whatever you just said. You know, I have no idea what he's talking about. And we've had that experience many times. I experience that every time somebody opens up the hood of a car and starts talking about it. I'm like, there's an engine. Beyond that, I mean, there's some other things down there, but I don't know. And they're talking about 436, 835, all these parts that I go, sure, you know, there you go. But sometimes, even in, in our Christian circles, we talk about things and we have terms and, uh, and words that we use that maybe to somebody that just comes in off the streets or isn't familiar with it, they're not sure what we're talking about. And even for some of us that have been a part of the Christian faith for many, many years, we have terms that we've used that we've, we've just gotten used to it, but we haven't really thought, do we really know what we're talking about? One of those words is the word repent. Repent or repentance raise your hand if you've ever heard this word before all right okay good making sure most of you have heard this word before you may not Uh, and and but when we say this word and we, we use it it's it's a it's a very necessary word jesus when he first started speaking in mark chapter one it said repent for the kingdom of god is at hand it's something that is is part of the gospel and people would say yes you need to repent of your sins but what does it mean to repent Well, the word repent literally means to change your mind. The Greek word that is used, that we translate into repentance means to change your mind. And if you were to look it up in the dictionary there, you'd see, okay, that's what it means. But beyond just the definition of it, how does it play out? What is that to change your mind? What's an example? How can we see this in reality? Well, what we're going to look at at the end of chapter 1 of Haggai is a picture of of the true nature of repentance. If you remember last week when we started looking at the book of Haggai, if you weren't here, we saw that the nation of of Israel, the Jewish people had come back from Babylon. They were captives. And they were allowed to go back to their homeland. And they went back and they started to rebuild the temple. And they started out with gusto. And all they did, though, was get the foundation laid. And for 15 years, that's as far as they got. They had the foundation and nothing else. And we saw in the first part of Haggai, chapter 1, that God kind of called them out on this. He said, you know, he he pointed out they had come up with a good excuse. The time is not yet right to rebuild the temple. And he said that's just an excuse. Then he noted that they had had time to work on their own things. They had built their own houses and made them extravagant. And then he called them to to change. He said, go up there. If you remember in verse 7 or verse 8, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, build the temple. So he told them what to do. That's what we saw last week. And we saw, as we see this, you know, the to-do list of being a follower of God is to do the will of God, what God has called us to do. And sometimes in life, that's not the way our lives are set up. We're not doing what God has called us to do. Things are out of whack, and we need to, as we see, repent. And that's what God called them to do, to change, to do something different. But would they? I mean, that's the big question. Would they actually follow through with it? There are lots of prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. And a lot of them had, they had the message of God, and a lot of times when they gave that message, it didn't work. The people heard it, and it had no effect. But here for Haggai, it works. He gives them the message, and we see in these last three or four verses of chapter one, their response, and it is a picture of biblical repentance. And so we're going to look at the four characteristics of biblical repentance that we see in this passage of Scripture for us that we can employ in our lives when the will of God is not where it should be in our lives. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, in honor of God's word as we read Haggai chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message i am with you declares the Lord and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Lord, I thank you for this uh, example in your word that you have recorded for us that happened so, so many years ago. But Lord, this picture of how we should respond when you speak. And Lord, I pray that as we examine our lives and we hear your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, that we would respond this way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So God shows them the problem, shows them the, the, the solution to their problem, and now what are they going to do? Well, we read, you just saw those four verses, they obeyed. And then we see this repentance and we talk about the four characteristics of it. And the first characteristic that we see is repentance requires the word of God. The word of God, as he announces all of the various people, but Zerubbabel and Joshua and and the remnant of the people, it says there, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. It is the words of God that stirred them up, that caused this response. It's the power of God's word. It wasn't just Haggai. I mean, it's great that Haggai was the one that spoke, but he was just the conduit or the tool that God used. It was God's words that made the difference. God's words are always the words that genuinely bring people to repentance, whether it's reading the word of God, just reading through scripture and the Holy Spirit impressing upon you, or or going to church and listening to a sermon, or a Bible study, or or, or some way that the word of God makes a difference in your life. It, It brings a certain power to it. The Bible talks about this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's a permanence about the Word of God. Ideas that people come up with, they come and go. You know, our culture is like any other point in history. People think they're coming up with all sorts of new great, grand things, and really they're just repackaged ideas that people have had from the beginning of time. God's Word, though, comes and it stays forever. It has eternal power. Isaiah built upon that in Isaiah 50, verse 11. It says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says, listen, when my word goes out, when I speak in a way that people can hear it, it's going to accomplish what I want. It's eternal and it has power. The writer of Hebrews picked up on this. He said this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The writer of Hebrews talking about the word of God kind of pictured it like a sword or a knife that it can pierce the heart, that it can open up who we really are when we read the word of God or we hear it, that God uses it in such a way to change us. It's an absolute essential requirement of genuine repentance, not just a slight change. There's a story of Charles Spurgeon a great preacher of the 18th century. And he was walking down the street. And as he was walking down the street, there was a guy that kind of came up to him. This guy was, was drunk. I mean, he was stumbling and knocking things over. He couldn't barely stand on his feet. And he stumbled up to Spurgeon and he said, Hey, you remember me? Spurgeon looked at him and said, No, why should I? And The guy said, I'm one of your converts. To which Spurgeon said, you must be one of mine. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. And the point was saying, listen, you can respond to my words when we come up with different types of ideas and schemes, great. But when the word of God speaks to us, there's a change that can take place. Why is this important to us today? It's important because we're, we're kind of living in a day and age where we can be approached with reducing the the power of the message of the gospel or the word of God or what genuine repentance is, true change in people's lives, to nothing more than a market strategy. For instance, I I get emails all the time. People want me to go to conferences or read their book or whatever. You know, as a pastor, I get things from politicians saying, hey, please show up here. Maybe I can convince you of something. I try not to talk about politics up here. But I get all sorts of stuff. Well, I got this one email, and it's just, I got this several years ago, and it has stuck with me, and it was to go to a conference, I think is what it was, and at the top of the email, it said, do you want to increase your baptisms by 30 or 40 or 50 percent, and I remember reading that, and it just struck me as, as I was reading it going, we've reduced the power of the message of God to a gimmick tweak this change that and you can increase this and I I, you hear it all the time as a pastor don't talk about sin too much that makes people uncomfortable that's kind of the point (laughs) but you can draw a bigger crowd you can draw more you know more flies to honey or whatever is the saying it's trying to tweak things this and that to draw a bigger and bigger and bigger crowd but is there any actual change that's taking place True change comes from the Word of God, not the words of the preacher. And so as we progress as a church, this cornerstone here in this little part of Arkansas, we must never forget that the true power that we have to see lives change, to see our neck of the woods changed and our our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world change is through the Word of God. That has to be the foundation for what we do, how we preach, how we teach, how we raise our kids. Not the gimmicks that come down the the, the pike. So characteristic one is repentance requires the word of God. Characteristic two, repentance registers with the fear of God. Repentance registers with the fear of God. Look at the end of verse 12. And the people feared the Lord they feared the lord when i was a kid i got invited to go over to one of my a friend of mine's house and uh, i didn't go over to his house but just one or two times this was the first time i got invited to go over and play video games and i thought this would be fun so i went over and he had a it's like a brother and a sister he had a couple of siblings and i stayed there for about two hours to play video games and i will not forget this experience Because I got to my friend's house, we went to his room to play video games, and for the entire two hours that we were at my friend's house, his mother did nothing but scream at him and his siblings. I mean, you know, who opened the door? Who left us out of the refrigerator? Just screamed at him the entire time. And the thing that really struck me as I was sitting there just listening to her scream over and over is it had absolutely no effect on my buddy. He just playing video games, smiling at me, and she's, you know, right at the door just yelling at him, you didn't pick up these clothes. And he's like, hey, man, look at what I'm about to do here. Had absolutely no effect. I'm just, you know, bug-eyed because that didn't work in my house. And her only, you know, real response was to get louder and louder and louder. But it just, it had no effect. And, and now that I've gotten older, I realize it's because my friend and his brother and sister didn't fear her, didn't care. They didn't have any reverence for their mom. Her words meant nothing. They heard them. I mean, there's no way you didn't hear it. And I'm sure the neighbors heard it, but it had no effect in their behavior. And what we see in the end of this verse when it says, and the people feared the Lord, it means that the people heard what Haggai said. They heard the message of God and they respected, they feared, they reverenced who God was so that his words had an impact in their life. As I mentioned, many prophets, they spoke the words of God, but it's like it went in this ear and out the other ear. It had no effect and no change on their behavior because they didn't care. Jesus, in, in one of the more famous parables he told, kind of illustrated this point. The parable of the sower. Jesus told a parable about a guy who goes out with seed, and he throws the seed, and, and it falls on various types of ground, and then depending on the type of ground, it, it grows or it doesn't grow. And the first, when he explained this, he said, the seed is like the word of God, and the various types of grounds are, are like the type of, of, of soul or person that hears it and how they respond. And the first one, I mean, there's several, but the first one for this point here, it falls on the ground and the birds come and snatch it away. And he said, these are like the people that hear the word of God. I mean, they hear it, but the devil snatches away. It has no effect on their life. And there are times when we will share the word of God and it'll have a great effect. And there are other times where it has none. I mean, you could look at Jonah. Walks through Nineveh, says 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And a huge effect. They all repent. They all, it's great. Then you have Jeremiah, or you have Ezekiel, and God tells them, listen, go and speak my words, but nobody's going to listen to you. It's going to have virtually no effect. In fact, they're not going to like you. The Apostle Paul, if you look, sometimes when he went to preach, When he went to teach, sometimes lots of people repented, turned from their sins, followed Jesus Christ. Other times, they stoned him. And the response will be the same as we go out there. Sometimes it'll have a great effect. Sometimes it won't. But it depends on if people fear God. Do they listen? How does that really play out in two separate ways that I want for for application today? The first is just the initial repentance when you hear the gospel. When, when somebody tells people the gospel, it starts out with the bad news. We are born sinners. We are separated from God. And because of that, if we don't do what God tells us to do, we are on a path when we die to go to hell. To be separated from Him for all eternity. If you fear God, that should make your ears perk up and go, well, what do I do? The answer is the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Put your faith and trust in Him. Make Him the Lord of your life. It's not your good works that will save you. It is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If we fear God, you respond to the message of the gospel. But there's also, for those of us that have responded in repentance to the gospel message, we're following Christ now as we go through the process of sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ. God calls us to a deeper walk with Him. We are reminded in ways the Holy Spirit will impress upon us in church or Bible studies. When the will of God for our life isn't where it needs to be. And he will convict us. And if we fear God, things will begin to change in our life. I've been encouraged this week in particular. I've had several folks come to me this week talking about the message last week and various things that God has, they've felt God laying on their heart. Maybe the past weeks or months and they realize that they, they know that these are things God wants for them in their life, whether it's, you know, life groups or different things. And, and they recognize they need to do it. It's because they fear God. One of the scariest things is for somebody to sit there and say, you know, I, I, I read the Word of God, I see some things, but I just don't care. I hear people that, I, you know, I'll talk to them and I'll say, tell me your testimony. And they'll say something like, well, I got saved when I was, you know, seven, eight, ten years old. That's it. And they'll ask, well, what is God doing in your life now? How is he he changing you in your life right now? And they just kind of have this quizzical look. What do you mean? God doesn't, he disciplines his children. He, He fashions us more like his son every day. It registers when we fear God. Point number Three, or characteristic number three. Repentance resides in the presence of God. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Notice what God says here the next time he speaks. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. As we see in this passage, the people obeyed. They begin to work on the temple. But one thing we need to note is that Nothing had changed in their circumstances, had it? As far as they knew, the the political position of the day was still in opposition to them them building the temple. They still didn't have any money. I mean, the last time we looked at this, they, they still weren't doing very well. They were still under subjection to the Persian army, the Persian Empire. The, 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 it wasn't still going to be the grandest temple. All of the things about their circumstances hadn't changed, but they were taking the step of obedience. Now, in our lives, when when we we realize God wants us to do something different with our life, He wants if something has to change in our priorities, it doesn't mean our circumstances change. In other words, if you're somebody who doesn't tithe, for instance, and you know God is calling you to tithe, it doesn't necessarily mean you get a brand new job making a lot more money or you just, you know, you win the publisher's clearinghouse or something. You're just, I still got the same bills that I had last week, but I'm going to take the step of faith and be obedient. And sometimes I think in, in, in our minds, our picture of God when this happens is that he's up in heaven kind of with his arms crossed, tapping his toe going, it's about time. I've been pressuring you for months or years to get on with it. Like we've just, you know, he's up there, he's just ready to zap us because it's taken this long or whatever. And it's hard when we have that particular picture. And so God goes out of his way to speak this brief little message to remind them, I'm not up there trying to make this horrifically difficult on you. I am with you. It's a message that God provides throughout his word for his people. As I was preparing this sermon, I was overwhelmed how many times we see this. Remember, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was the son of promise, not his older brother Esau, it was Jacob. And he really messed things up with his family and stealing a birthright and all of this stuff from his brother. And he set off on his own and he, he has this dream where he, you know, he has a rock for a pillow and he seems kind of like he's messed up his life. And in the dream, God says, I am with you. He has a son, Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's forgotten, probably thinks his life is going to amount to nothing as he sits in Potiphar's house, wasting away. God says, I'm with you. Moses, who thought he would lead the Israelites out of Egypt in his own power, kills an Egyptian and it backfires on him. He's hunted down, so he runs away to Midian. And there he becomes a shepherd, and for 40 years he's a shepherd. He's an 80-year-old man, probably thinks life's about done, and all of a sudden one day he walks out and there's a burning bush. And God says to him, I'm with you. Gideon's outnumbered 300 to 10,000 in a a battle, or 10,000 or more. He's ready to face them with with insurmountable odds. He has no chance in, in normal circumstances to win, and God says to him, I'm with you. He says it to David. He says it to Jeremiah. Over and over, when people take a step of obedience, when they begin to follow God, despite the circumstances that are overwhelming, God reminds them, I'm with you. And in the New Testament, the first gospel, Matthew chapter 1, as the angel tells Mary and Joseph, you're going to have a son, he gives him the first title and he refers back to a passage in Isaiah. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Some of us in this room are struggling. We know God has called us to do something drastically different with our lives. It's scary. It seems overwhelming. We don't seem like anybody's on our side. We're not sure how it's going to work out. We're not even sure what the first step is. God is not up there with His arms crossed, tapping His toe, Staring daggers at you. He's with you. He's going to give you the power to do it. He is on your side. And we can't ever forget that when we repent. Characteristic four, the final one. Repentance relies on the work of God. Look at verse 14. The Lord stirred up It's a good word. Stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And then he goes on to list all of the the various people. And then it says they came together to work on the the house. It took them about three weeks from the first message to this one to get to work. Now that could be just organizing, getting the supplies. But they, they got to it. God confronted them. God told them what the problem was. Told them the solution. And they got to it. But it says here it was the power of the Lord. They were stirred up. That word stirred up has the sense of, of being awakened, of wokeness. There's a word that's very popular in our culture today, being woke. Not really in biblical terms, but maybe social justice, which we'll steer clear of here. But we'll talk about it in the case of what God's Word says here. They became aware. They became aware of what God wanted in their life. And it stirred them up to change their behavior. Characteristic of repentance, when we say the the definition is to change your mind, it always results in changed behavior. It will always result in you doing something different if it's genuine repentance. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter three, we read a little account about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, um, he's out there and he's he's kind of a weird dude. He's got you know camel and he eats locusts and. He looks kind of crazy, but he's popular, and everybody's going out to him, and he, you know, baptizes them, hence the name John the Baptist. That's his thing, and so he draws the attention of some of the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they go out there, and they want to be baptized by him, and Luke chapter 3 records this particular event. You know, they go up to him and approach him to be baptized, and his first response, first he calls them a brood of vipers, you know, he kind of yells at him. I've always thought, what would happen if I did that, you know? We have a baptism service announced in the worship guide, and some kid comes up. I'm, I'm interested in being baptized. You brood of vipers! I don't know how well that would go over with people if I s- approached it that way. But. but he approaches them because probably they're kind of disingenuous. They're not really concerned about what he's really talking about. He's just popular, and they want you know his, his stamp of approval so they can stay in good standing with the people. But they come to him, and they ask him this. And John the Baptist said this to them bear fruit in keeping with repentance bear fruit in keeping with repentance in other words if you've changed your mind and you you now agree with what i'm preaching the gospel message about turning from your wicked ways then then demonstrate it if it's true repentance true changing of your mind is going to result in a change of behavior And this brings me to a point that I I guess after 10 or 12 years here of ministry, of dealing with people on this issue, that I, I, I see where people miss this part. What I see with a lot of folks is that they get to a level of regret, not so much repentance. And what I mean by that is I'll talk to people and they will readily admit they're a sinner. They will readily admit going through various things in the Bible that they've done those things or Or behaved in ways, you know, whether it's lust, adultery, drunkenness, or just curse, whatever. They'll say, yes, I've done some things I shouldn't do. And that's about as far as it gets. They feel bad. They know it's not right. They say they shouldn't do it. But then nothing really changes about the way they live their life. There's no real difference. There's no fruit in keeping with repentance. But whenever we see repentance in the Bible, it's it's this. It's it's characterized by a genuine change that takes place in a person's life. And so we see this here with with Haggai. God shows them their their failure. He shows them what needs to change, and it does. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not going to have any shortcomings. They're not going to mess up again. They will. In fact, the very next passage that we're going to look at is, you know, when they get a little discouraged and he kind of helps them along. And as we repent, we're going to have setbacks. We're still going to sin. Some of us get stuck on particular sins, but there is a change that begins to take place. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, each and every week, month, year, we should be moving closer to what he's called us to be. There should be a noticeable change that people see in, in the fruits of our life with repentance. If it's nothing more than just continually saying, yeah, yeah, I mess up, but my life is pretty much the same as it was in 2008 or 1997 or whatever it is, why? So what I want you to do, I want you to bow your heads this morning. The Musicians are going to come up here in just a moment. We are going to sing a final song. But I talk about here the, the, the characteristics of repentance, and I said it's changing your mind. But it's a change of mind, as we see in Scripture, that results in a change of behavior. It is the power of God. And so what I want you to do is just to pray right now that God would stir you up. That he'd stir all of us up. So that our behavior would be something different. So that we would be more in tune with what he has called us to do. I'm going to pray in just a moment, then the guys are going to come up and sing a final song. But as if you saw in your worship guide this, this week, there's a, a little sheet, like a follow-up. Some other scripture passages and places you can go to kind of look a little bit more about what we've, we've talked about this morning. But genuine repentance is a genuine change. And so pray this morning that God would stir you up, stir me up, stir all of us up the way he did to the Jews way back then. Lord, I thank you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, as it says here, your power, your Holy Spirit, would speak among everyone in this room. Lord, there are those that may not know you as their Savior and Lord. They've never repented of their sins initially. They've never confessed your name as the Lord of their life. They're relying on their good works or whatever. And I pray this morning that your word would penetrate their hearts, Lord, that it wouldn't go in one ear and out the other, that they would fear you this morning. They would turn their life to you, Lord. I pray if there's someone here after this service, they would come and find me. They'd say, Preacher, can I talk to you for just a few moments? For others in this room, Lord, as as they look at their lives, they look at some of the things that have gone on this week, the way your Holy Spirit is, is beginning to stir them up in areas that need to change, Lord, that they would continue through. Lord, that they would bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Lord, I pray that for all of us, for this church, Lord, that we would be a church bearing fruit for you. I ask all these things in Jesus' Jesus precious name. Amen.